Hi there, thanks for downloading and listening to the 4 Million Years Later podcast. This is a show where two old friends get together and watch an episode of the Generation 1 Transformers cartoon in story order, and then comparing their perspectives on it, both between the two of us as the hosts, but also comparing our perspectives as young people who fell in love with the show in the mid-80s and never fell out of love with it, and here we are as adults talking about it, comparing how we feel about it as grown-ups, how we felt about it as kids, and how we feel about it between the two of us. My name is Jersey Droz. I'm a cartoonist and teaching artist. The other host is named... The Hoover in the depths, the depths of <laughs> depths. the United States. Depths is a tricky word to say. Depths. Depths. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it almost sounds like it's like like teed up to be a Mel Brooks joke, you know, like in Young Frankenstein or something. We're talking about the dweller in the depths. Top level view is one of my favorite episodes, actually. And revisiting it, I, I realized how, why I loved it so much as a child. I, I have a feeling our opinions may slightly diverge on this one, which is exciting. Perhaps, perhaps. So who wrote The Dweller in the Depths? Well, this one is by Paul Dini, his one and only Transformers episode. And you probably know his name, but if you don't, you've absolutely seen something that he wrote. He wrote for over 100 shows, and if you want to pull up his IMDb and go browse, go right ahead, but I hope you have a little while. Here's some of the cartoon highlights. Filmation's Flash Gordon, Dungeons and Dragons, Mr. T, 11 episodes of He-Man and the Masters of the Universe original series, wow. one G.I. Joe episode, Ewoks, Droids, Gem, Tiny Toon Adventures, Batman the Animated Series, Superman, go. Clerks the Animated Series, what? Batman Beyond, Justice League, Justice League Unlimited, Batman the Brave and the Bold, a great series that no one really talks about. Mm -hmm. He even wrote an episode of the ABC drama Lost, and all this is just the icing on the cake. He gets around. He wrote amazing episodes of cartoons. Is this one amazing? Let's see. After what we've endured in season three, I think we could use an amazing episode. <laughs> we are due. If there is justice in this universe, after the last handful of episodes, we're due. I mean, the whole premise of this podcast was to like celebrate this project, which was hastily put together by a whole bunch of people in parallel to make a commercial for toys. But I have consistently shown up to say, no, no, no. They knew they were making a commercial, but they were trying their level best to make something entertaining and helpful for young people. And man, some of these recent episodes, I'm like, I think they were trying. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, Paul Dini is no slouch. So I, yeah, there, there's a zillion reasons I love this one. I'm going to be doing a lot of excitedly interrupting of you, I think, <laughs> as we go through it. If you didn't read the description that Hoover wrote for these episodes, then why don't you? Why don't you? I mean, he writes really funny things in the episode descriptions. But we're about to embark on a Transformers horror movie episode. And I'm so here for it. So <clears throat> here comes the part where we do the IMDb log line read. I always read it cold. Whoever puts it in the notes, I, sk I just skim right over top of it to see if I, when I read it cold, if I get caught on any of the weird grammatical anomalies that are inevitable when you crowdsource things on the internet. So here we go. Ready? <clears throat> 
the Quintesson trick the Decepticons <laughs> into unleashing an underground transorganic creature developed on Cybertron in the years before the Transformers. That felt like it was a couple sentences. <laughs> also, the Quintesson trick. So I guess you could interpret Quintesson as like a plural species name, right? <laughs> if you really want to give him that much credit, sure. Yeah. I'm, try, I'm trying to be expansive here. You know, maybe like, yeah, yeah. Like it could be Quintessons or Quintesson. <laughs> Where can people watch this one, Hoover? Well, this one is season three, episode 18 on Tubi. It's a little further back than we've been. It's also on the hmm. Hasbro Pulse YouTube channel. All right. Well, I don't want to tease any more about it. So why don't you tell us where we begin, Hoover? Well, we start with a pan down from space to Cybertron, where Springer flies above in helicopter mode, hauling something. Rodimus Prime to Springer. You're all clear, buddy. I copy, Rodimus. Proceeding as planned with power core insertion. Springer hovers over a cylindrical structure on the planet with a hole in the top. He begins lowering his cargo into the hole. It's completed at last. This new power core will triple Cybertron's energy reserves. So we're not even 30 seconds in, and this episode looks beautiful. Springer's helicopter mode looks spot on and highly detailed, and when we switch to the perspective of Perceptor and the gang watching from inside a tower, Toei gets real show-offy. That's right, this is a Toei animated episode, not Acom. And not only do they animate Perceptor, Magnus, and RC beautifully in this scene, but they animate their reflection in the window. <sighs> and it's done at an angle, so it's not simply a simple matter of flipping the cells and drawing them backwards for the reflection. They're at just enough of an angle to where it requires a whole new drawing. And they do it at like 50% opacity to make it look like a reflection, too. Mm -hmm. ACOM could not have managed any of this. <laughs> Feels really braggy, like like Toy watched some of the ACOM episodes and were like, ooh, I hope you didn't pay for those. <laughs> and then they were like, let me show you what we can do for you. I, I can attest being a freelance contractual artist and being friends with many freelance contractual artists that we do do things like that. Yes, we can be that petty. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let me show you how you, re you really do it. Zip, 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 zip. Oh, that looked like magic. Yes, it did. That's why I charge as much as I do. Yeah, yeah that, that's a real thing. So I, I wouldn't put it past them. So. Well, Worrywart Ultra Magnus wants to be sure that Cybertron can handle the excess power. We've taken every precaution, Ultra Magnus. But just in case there should be a power overload, activating this lever will jettison the power core into space before an explosion can occur. Uh-oh. Perceptor shows us a special lever behind glass. Anybody hear of the literary device Chekhov's gun? In short, it means if you're watching a play and they go to the trouble of showing you a gun, then you can expect that that gun will be fired before the story's end. So is this Chekhov's lever? We'll find out. <laughs> I also want to encourage people to look up at the screen in these scenes. I know you're doing st other stuff. I know you're looking at your phone and everything, but you know, <laughs> put the phone aside for 21 minutes. You can, you can focus on something for 21 minutes. We did. 
But if you look up during the scene, they, they take care to do some shots where it's like, if you look at it as a screen cap, it's like, why, why is it screen cap that? Well, because they're like, they're off in the distance. There's like a big piece of machinery obscuring the front view and you can't even see like their faces because they're so far away, but it's giving you a sense of place. This is something that in my cartooning classes, I really try to impress on my students is like, you know, you can do the John Arbuckle talking to Garfield head and shoulder shot panel after panel after panel that, that, that functions, it works. But if you take the time to say what's worth looking at in the room and how can I give my viewers or readers a sense of where we are, that's always helpful. It always, nobody notices it. I doubt very much when you were watching this episode, you were like, oh, how nice that they zoom back out to show their backs at the brother at the computer bank. Mm -hmm. And we see some of the stairs behind them and some machinery in the foreground. Of course not, but we receive it. We receive it. And this is where I highlight this just to show that these people were doing this on purpose and they weren't phoning it in. And let's learn from this, how to tell stories really well, because yeah, was it just two episodes ago we had that acom blunder where wrecker is sitting on the left and then like the next scene he's sitting on the right we didn't <laughs> see him get up and change seats so it's like okay this is this is carefully done work it looks terrific and here's another reason that something like that is important for season three it's because in season one and season two all the autobots lived in the ark we see yeah. the ark every episode it becomes mm -hmm. second nature for us to know what the ark is and what it looks like Season three, at least on Cybertron, <laughs> Metroplex is on Earth, and we kind of get a sense of what Metroplex looks like on the inside, kind of. Yeah. But when they're yep. on Cybertron, if Autobot headquarters is one building, I don't even know if that's true. You're I mean, right. You're, they're yeah. just places when they're on Cybertron. We don't go, oh, look, they're in Autobot headquarters on Cybertron. We don't mm -hmm. know. They're just somewhere on Cybertron. I mean, in their defense, they basically have the whole planet now, so there's maybe not one specific Autobot headquarters that they all stay in all the time. But when they're in places on Cybertron, they're not recognizable places to the viewer. So right. it's yeah. good that they're showing us where they are because we're not instinctively going to say, oh, they're in the Ark, like we would have in Season 1 and Season 2. You're absolutely right. Yes, that's an important thing, too. We're getting a sense of what this weird headquarters location is that Perceptor and the gang are in because of the, the these, you know, moving around the room shots that they're doing. So bravo to you, Toei. Springer waves at the crew in the tower, giving the signal to flip the switch and fire up their new device. Now, in response to this wave, RC says, There's Rodimus Prime's signal. But it's Springer who waves. And in fact, we've only heard and not seen Rodimus so far. But it doesn't read as an error at first, because if Rodimus has instructed Springer to wave, then that's technically still Rodimus Prime's signal. But as the power core explodes with life, Springer proudly proclaims, That power core will keep Cybertron lit for centuries. However, that's Rodimus's voice coming out of him. So, Toei, you were so excited to have Acom hold your beer that you only animated <laughs> one character instead of two. Points off. <laughs> the Autobots celebrate their newfound power source. This means Magnus no longer has to patrol the Autobot living spaces, flipping light switches, going, Anybody using this room? 
Anybody coming through this room? And threatening to put in lower wattage bulbs and all the light fixtures. You, you're right. They missed an opportunity to do, to do that joke in this series because all of us as children have the experience of dad reminding you how much it costs every time you flip a light switch. So we pan back and see somebody's watching all this play out on their monitor. Guess who it is? It's those tentacled turkeytrons, the Quintessons, spying on the Autobots as usual. But interestingly enough, there are three Quintessons present, and none of them are what's considered the traditional five-faced variety. We have one who looks like the bailiff from the movie, with the long head that sweeps back like a Giger xenomorph, and has three green tentacles on each side serving his arms. And the other two are similar to the scientist type that we saw in Forever is a Long Time Coming, though each is distinct from each other. The Quintessons discuss their usual M.O. of retaking Cybertron and how their past attempts to do this have all failed. Until now, to secure Cybertron for the future, we can draw on help from our distant past. What do you mean? Surely you have not forgotten our first experiments in cybernetic construction, the transorganics. Transorganics? Those are only a legend. Not to the one who built them. They were the first attempts at creating a race of subservient cybernetic warriors, half beast, half machine. But the process was too unstable, and the transorganics were judged unfit for even simple tasks. This is Regis Cordrick and Tony Pope as the pair of Quintessons, but you know them better as Menasaur and Rekar, respectively. So that dude that we heard with the higher voice, the guy who knows about the transorganics, he, we've never seen this Quintesson type before, and I don't think we ever see him again. He is, his face is more, I would say it's shaped like a, like a, statue on Easter Island mm. kind of thing, like the, the elongated face. Mm -hmm. It's really tall and narrow. He has like a lot more orange on him than the other Quintessons do, but he's got the traditional, like he's got the little hover beam that he's riding around on, got some leg tentacles, some arm tentacles, but his face is decidedly more human than what we've seen on a lot of the Quintessons th so far. But once again, we have like the, the big head and little body, which I proposed suggests monstrous intellect like what we we're used to getting mm. in 1950s sci-fi monsters but yeah it's worth noting that his head shape because we're going to learn something about him very very shortly but between that high nasally voice and that pinched up like his face almost looks disgusted all the time mm -hmm. he has kind of like this weird Moomin slash mime slash Alice in Wonderland monster kind of vibe to him. And I always found him like a little bit disturbing when I was a kid. Mm. Well, he continues explaining that one of these transorganics turned on its creators, resulting in the loss of one of this Quintesson's faces. We see him in the flashback having two faces and one getting smashed up in the skirmish. Now it happens very quickly in the animation, but I screen capped it, Hoover. Will you agree that this is a horrific thing that they put right on camera? Yeah, there's a giant tentacle essentially going into this robot's eye. And even though it's a robot, it's still still pretty intense. Yeah, well, and that was why I was careful to describe that he has a human-like face. Because we see the horror on the human face as it's getting gored mm -hmm. by this tentacle. And like a quarter of a second later, the rest of the face is just like ripped off. 
right? So now we've got like, okay, he's injured by this by one of these creatures. That's important. This will come up later. But the the really important thing is I remember watching this episode and feeling like, whoa, did we just walk into a, a horror episode? And this is the first signal. This is the very first thing they show you. Like, okay, you're going to see stuff like this this time, everybody. Brace yourselves. This is not the Autobot run. There's no boom glitches in your brain garage <laughs> in this one. This is not City of Steel where Ironhide slowly falls sideways because Rumble <laughs> pounded on the ground. No, you just watched Aquinasan get his face gored out by, you know... <laughs> almost like a legend of the overfiend tentacle, right? <laughs> so it's, it's, it's genuinely upsetting, I think. And I'm going to make a case towards the end of this episode why I think that this is a good thing. I normally don't go in for the heavy violence, but I think that now we're, and the reason I like horror as a genre is it really takes like a, a bigger step out into the world, good horror at least, I think, takes a step out into the world of mythical ideas. And... Bringing in this new kind of Quintesson who has this shared history with these creatures called the transorganics, I think also lends kind of like, you know, even one of the, the, the other Quintesson even says they're, they're just a legend, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, it's like the Babadook. It's like, it's something out of a storybook. It's not real. Uh, it's real. And it's, it, it's, you know, buried deep in Cybertron. Oh, scary, spooky. So anyway, yeah, everybody look up at the screen when he gets his face ripped open and you you tell me, should this episode have been PG-13? I think it should have been. <laughs> well, he says that the transorganics were all destroyed, or if they couldn't be, they were locked up in a hibernation chamber. So these beasts that are half beast, half machine are kept locked away deep in the bowels of Cybertron. And this Quintesson theorizes that if these creatures were to be unleashed... They destroy all of Cybertron's pesky current inhabitants, allowing the Quintessons to reclaim the planet. But how could we release the Dweller without being destroyed ourselves? That task will leave up to the Decepticons. So as per usual, the Quints are going to trick the Decepticons into doing their bidding. So naturally, we cut away to Char, where it's a day ending in Y, so Galvatron's having a fit. He's yelling at six assembled sweeps as Cyclonus looks on. You cringing, cowardly, weak-willed fools! Why am I still stuck on this worthless cosmic trash bin? Why have I not retaken Cybertron? And most importantly, why have I been saddled with such a useless pile of rusting junk for followers? Here again we have Toei showing off. When Galvatron is shouting, he's really shouting. His mouth is contorting into elaborate shapes, and there's speed lines all around him like he's lunging at the camera. And the shot looks beautiful. It really does. And also, this is, for those keeping score, this episode must have been in production early on. One, because like the first act has a lot of season one music in it, which I'm going to point out some things about that later. But Char has gone back to being a barren rock planet. There's no evidence that there's any Decepticon base. He's literally standing outside just yelling at the troops as they just stand there looking at him, right? Mm -hmm. But it also fits in well with Galvatron's excessive need for random violence. I could see Char like being like, like, oh, wow, we're like 20% of Cybertron now with all of our <laughs> constructs. And then Galvatron just is angered by... A sweep saying some word that he doesn't <laughs> like and then he just blows it all up 
Yeah, like the 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 Constructicons built two spires on one of the buildings, and it reminded Galvatron of Ultra Magnus's antennae. Yeah, exactly. And then he just like he wrecks up the place. <laughs> I like that fanfic. Well, Scorch begins to make an excuse for the Decepticons' failure, saying they need Energon to accomplish anything, and he manages to get about eight words out before we follow Galvatron's fist into Scorch's face. <laughs> yep. They, they actually track it. The camera follows this across the screen <laughs> as it connects with Scourge. And Scourge flies back into the next sweep, knocking over the whole assembly like a row of dominoes. It's power you want? I'll give you power! Drunk Dad Galvatron aims his fusion cannon at them, and the sweeps scatter, but suddenly a laser beam strikes down, not from Galvatron's cannon, but from the sky to the planet below. And we see that this is some sort of teleportation beam of the Quintessons. Two of the three from the prior scene have beamed down to enlist the Decepticons to secretly do their bidding. Greetings, Decepticons. We have come to make you an offer. Quintessons, you betrayed us to the Autobots. Why should we listen to you? <laughs> Please, Galvatron, you can't lay one bad experience on the doorstep of the whole Quintesson race. Besides, how can you be so certain we are the ones who betrayed you? Well, you all do look alike. State your offer. Now, ironically, the Quintessons don't all look alike. <laughs> as far as I remember, Galvatron has only dealt with the five-faced variety before. And unless I'm remembering wrong, he's never talked to either of these types of Quintesson. Now, I'm not saying that this is a mistake, just that Galvatron doesn't have an eye for detail. To Galvatron, Quintessons are just weird robotic egg bots with tendrils. Never mind that some have five faces and some don't. They're just a mix of silver, orange, green, and annoyance to him. Well, yeah, and I also like how it, it almost points to, like, Galvatron's a racist. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, y'all look the same to me. <laughs> you know, it's like, and I, I, this is the one thing that always stood out to me in this episode, not the line itself. Like, I actually like the fact they're implying that Calvatron is not only an abusive dad, but he's a racist creep too. <laughs> but the, the, the performance that Frank Welker did in that line has always bugged me. Like, well, you all do look like, what was that? Like, give, give me another take, please. Yeah, I think and he's I know, having a little too much fun with it. Yeah, <laughs> Gavatron isn't really about fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, 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 he goes, he shifts tone really abruptly there. And I don't know if that was like an editing thing or what, but like ever since I was a kid, I was like, why did he say it like that? But I like that he said it. Well, the Quintessons show the Decepticons a hologram of the Autobots' new power core and tell Gavatron how powerful it could make the Decepticons. But Gavatron's been fooled before and demands to know what's in it for them to inform him of this. The Quintessons explain that this is a peace offering which they hope will strengthen the alliance between the two factions, which has become strained as of late. So Galvatron is intrigued, and next thing we know, Galvatron, Cyclonus, and Five Sweeps are seen on a very old and dingy-looking part of Cybertron. Galvatron knocks down the door on the shaft as the others look on. Can this abandoned shaft really be the entrance to the power core? It had better be, for the Quintesson's sake. They enter the dilapidated shaft only to hear shouts from behind them. It's those pesky Autobots. Ultra Magnus, Springer, and RC. 
and they're irked that the Decepticons stopped by without calling first. And if you guess that a firefight breaks out, you are correct. But after managing to subdue them briefly, Galvatron leads the Decepticons down the shaft where he's been told the power core is. This this whole scene looks really pretty in that the the shaft looks I don't know how to describe it. It looks like run down Cybertron, but in a way that we haven't seen before because Cybertron looked run down when Shockwave was running the place, right? Like mm-hmm. when we went to episodes like the search for Alpha Trion. But this looks different. It's starting like the moment they knock down the door and we see the shaft, it starts to look more organic. It it does I wouldn't call it organic yet, but it looks like it's not just rust. It almost looks like slime or moss or something creepy and living is in the cracks between the metal metallic plates. And even in the foreground, there's like this weird like tree root thing. Mm. And it's like, well, why would that be there? So I love this this visual implication of you are entering the underworld kind of idea. And we talked about this in the key to vector Sigma, these kind of mythical ideas of having to go down into the underworld to like get the special thing to come back with. And you're going to face, face trials in the underworld and you're going to be changed when you come out the other side. Some of you aren't going to come back and those who do come back are going to be different. And we get the aerial bots coming out of there. Now this is the same idea, but we're getting much more of like a horror vibe to it. Now it's not only like a dark tunnel and I want to really, I'm going to talk about this a couple times today is this idea of like, Hoover, when, when you were a kid did and I, I only ask this because I know that not all places in the world have these but did you have a basement in your house no in Texas typically there are no basements there are some exceptions I think but typically they do not exist and that's understandable given that you're on the Gulf and like boy eight times a year you have like all the water in the world dumped on your head <laughs> but where I grew up in central Michigan we had a basement and there's something I think really uh, primordial about a basement to a child. The basement is that dark place downstairs that you really don't do much in. I mean, let me put it this way. When I was a kid, we didn't have a finished basement. Finished basements were pretty hard to come by where I grew up. And when I saw them, I was like, what? You have TVs down here? You have carpeting down here? What happens if the sump pump stops working? You know? So our basement was like the traditional, like, you know, cinder block, concrete floor, weird sump pump in the corner, pile of laundry, basements a bunch of boxes and storage and so it has this kind of other world you're going underground when you go in the basement in the basement when i was a little kid was a terrifying prospect go down in the basement get that thing no you go down in the basement and this has that vibe to it they're it's not just going into the underworld and facing a bunch of faceless robots those guardian soldiers that responded to the key when megatron held it up now it's got kind of like a moldiness to it. Like it, you can almost smell the mildew mm-hmm. when you look at this shot. That's what I, why, why screen captics. I really want to underline that. Cause I think that that pervades the next two acts of the episode. On the Quintesson ship, the one of them that helped build the transorganics is addressing 13 other Quintessons, all the same, roughly the same scientist body type. Still no five face ones, which is a little mm. strange. The series really gives no indication what the difference between any of the designs are, why some have five faces, why some obviously had two faces in the past. Who knows? Also, the, we should describe the ship they're on. Because when we say Quintesson ship, we tend to think of that corkscrew-looking thing mm-hmm. that we saw in Transformers the movie. This is not that. Yeah. Th- this is like, I don't even know how I'd describe it. Take a cartoon image of a 1950s space hero rocket ship right 
big old cockpit on it, little tiny wings at the back, flip it upside down so that the cockpit's on the bottom and just like shade the glass dark so it's like a dark cockpit that you can't see, but make the ship so big that it's like Enterprise class, right? There's a whole bunch of little tiny windows all around it. So it's this giant upside down rocket ship where there's just this enormous black dome on the bottom for no clear reason, but it looks interesting. It's a cool looking design, but it's it's also it's white, right? Yeah. Quintessence ships tended to be green, orange, and gray, like their bodies, but this is a whole different thing. And yeah, I there's got to be people who know, or maybe there's like some fanfics out there of like why there's these different, very distinct Quintesson branches. Mm-hmm. But they're really telegraphing it, at least visually, that these are not the dudes who we met in Five Faces of Darkness. They're some different subsect. Yeah. Well, the former two-faced Quintesson speaks. Everything is going precisely as calculated. Soon, the unwitting Decepticons will unleash the Dweller, and all the Transformers will be doomed. We must witness our victory firsthand. Set a course for Cybertron. And back on said planet, the Autobots are climbing out of the wreckage. Galvatron collapsed on top of them. And now we see that Cup and Wreck are with Magnus, Springer, and Arcee as well. And Arcee wonders why the Decepticons are here, and what could they possibly expect to find down this old shaft, which she doesn't think leads anywhere. Now, Arcee, remember, the Decepticons lived here last year. <laughs> you guys kicked them off planet. It could be Megatron's old man cave down here with a sign on the door that reads, No Star Screams Allowed. <laughs> Maybe Reflector is still down here crashing on Megatron's old couch. Or old three couches. And he's wondering when Thundercrack is going to show up with the beer. <laughs> he's he's dead dead here. here. <laughs> he's dead, Reflector. Oh, oh no. no. <laughs> But uh, again, we got this great scene where RC says like, well, why would they go down there? And like, she even like does this protective little like hugging herself as she looks down there. Like she's standing with her arms at her side, but as she's describing the shaft, she does this, they, they took care to animate her being like, ah, like a chill, like mm-hmm. a chill came over her as she looks down there. And then they show down the shaft. And once again, it doesn't just look run down. It looks icky somehow. It almost looks like I was reminded also of like the film, the Amityville horror where like the walls start bleeding. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't just look like oil dripping. It almost looks like the walls have bled in the past. It looks really gross. So cutting back to the Decepticons, they've now made it to the lowest level of the planet with no sign of the power core. Cyclonus, as per usual, is the only one doing any thinking. <laughs> Do you think it was just a Quintesson hoax? But before he can be answered, two sweeps find a door down here and kick it down. This excites Galvatron, thinking that they found the power core at last. They find the door leads to another door, which Galvatron fires on, knocking it down. And here's another thing that will reward paying close attention to the episode. The door the sweeps kick down is like your standard metal Cybertronian door. It looks like, you know, the blast door on any, you know, G.I. Joe or Transformers episode. But the next door looks different, doesn't it? Right? It looks like it's caked over in some kind of mud and it's got like this organic pattern to it as if to once again, telegraph, don't open this door. <laughs> there's, there's cursed stuff on the other side of this door and Galvatron being Galvatron. Galvatron's the character in the zombie movie who imperils the whole group because he's such a jerk. You know, I got a couple of examples later on where he totally does that move, but here he does it. It's like, there's clearly, 
you don't want to open that door just by virtue of the fact that it looks so different than all of the doors you open. But Galvatron's like, get out of the way! It just shoots it. <laughs> and everyone runs in excitedly, but no one sees anything that looks like a power core. Galvatron is incensed, finally realizing he's been tricked. But what is here is a big device attached to five or six large pulsating sacks via large cables. Jersey, you want to describe what we're looking at here? Yeah, I almost feel like I tried to think of other examples of what this reminded me of, but my, the first image that came to mind was the title screen from Super Metroid of the scientific sort of table with like buttons and lights on it. And then your, su your scientific subject is like suspended above the table, right? Because mm -hmm. you got like this black base, which clearly looks like a computer computer run platform. And then you have these things that look like light green eggplants, which are connected to the platform on the bottom via purple, what would you say, like veins? They literally look like veins, right? Mm -hmm. And then connected to the ceiling, and at the ceiling is another like, you know, protrusion, but this one looks more like it's made of some kind of organic material. The whole room does not look like a Cybertronian room. It's all irregularly shaped. There's these odd protrusions that almost look like boils or like popped zits, mm -hmm. like all over the walls. It's all purple and green. The door across from them is not a traditional Cybertronian door. It's like a rounded door. It looks like it's made of wood or something. And the the weird eggplants are connected to the ceiling via these like just metallic cables. The whole thing feels like, you know, very like something out of the movie Alien. Not quite as richly detailed, but it's it's clear enough that they just walked you walked into the basement and you found the thing you were scared to find but galvatron doesn't know to be scared yet and the worst thing is is you know that he hasn't even met the monster yet mm -hmm. you've just found evidence of the monster and that's what makes this this one such a good horror story is they took time to have them walk through and go like what the heck is this <laughs> and you're like don't don't touch it galvatron don't touch it for god's <laughs> sakes everything looks like rock or dirt or yeah very planty too it looks like like the the protrusions on the walls were secreted right mm -hmm. they weren't built they weren't installed this is something that either grew naturally or was like pushed into the walls like with like something that came out of somebody's body it's it's mm. it's really it, it feels unnerving and icky and it's got like that sickly green light in there too it's also worth listening to the music of the scene, everybody, because they took care to use season one music all throughout the first act of this one. And we get some season three music later on too, which is interesting. But this is the, that sort of tension building music that played when Grimlock, Slag, and Sludge were murdering Optimus Prime and War of the Dinobots. Remember that, that whole scene? It's like, yep. uh, and I think they played it again at the end when Grimlock was saying like, bad Megatron. <laughs> but it, it really fits well here. So when they walk in that room, Every kid in the United States watching this were like, don't touch anything, Galvatron, please. So naturally in anger, Galvatron shoots the device as the squirming sacks fall to the ground. Oh, Galvatron. <laughs> Galvatron is already walking out, dreaming of revenge on the Quintessons, but the sudden cry of Scourge behind him shakes him from his fantasy. Help me! Help me! Galvatron turns to find Scourge in the grip of a giant, hideous monster nearly twice his size. The beast looks like a gorilla with tentacle arms. And there's not just one monster here, but six different creatures, all of them bizarre. 
In addition to the tentacle gorilla, tentrilla maybe, there's a four-legged, almost stegosaurus-looking thing, a giant robotic pteranodon or something, something that looks like a giant yellow bear with robotic <laughs> head crest and paws, and then something that looks more at home in wheeled warriors with a giant claw-like mouth. And then one that looks like a giant lizard, but with robotic torso and head with a bear trap on its back. <laughs> All of them are nightmarish and bizarre, looking like they have no problems fitting into the Inhumanoids cartoon. I, I, I totally agree. Yes, they, they are the nightmare. Nightmare is a perfect word for it, too, because like the background here is mostly that purple and green again. It's kind of abstracted. It's like, okay, you're still in like this room, this rocky room with these weird like pores or like broken boils on the walls. And then we see like this, this quick shot of all of the, the, the trans organics. And then like you, when you see the, the, the odd juxtaposition of like, well, there's ones that are more animal than robot. And there's ones that are more robot than animal. But like you said, like one of them has a bear trap on its back and that yellow bear has like a robot bear face and his mouth is kind of like a buzzsaw yeah. of sorts. So it's like, it, it feels on the surface. We can describe it. It sounds absurd, but the absurdity is what lends this kind of nightmarish and horrific aspect to it. Because this is one of those things about horror that I, I, got kind of mixed feelings on is that there's an element of, if you show the monster, you've kind of ruined the the thing for some people. Like I, I know there's an expectation to see the monster, but sometimes not showing the monster is way better because everybody gets to imagine their own worst monster. And the, the example I always think of is the movie super eight where like the first, I want to say like two thirds of the film, there's the implication of monster. And I had, without whether I knew it or not, I had an image in my head and then they showed the monster. And I was like, Oh, okay. It's, yeah. it's a big HR Geiger monster. Okay. I guess it's still gross. I'm watching it eat a person and everything, but it didn't, it didn't feel as the, I didn't feel the same kind of like deep primal fear of the kid afraid of the thing under their bed, the way I did in the first two acts of the movie. So there's, there's a trade-off that happens when you actually show your monster. And I feel like this one pays off on the trade-off with, something that feels akin to that scene in The Shining when Shelley Duvall turns the corner and sees the two men in the room and one guy's wearing a bear mask. It feels absurd and almost comical and silly, but at the same time, it's off-putting because of that. Mm -hmm. So I think this works. Yeah, I agree. And at the sight of these nightmares, the Decepticons can only stare in incomprehension. Scourge pleads for help, unable to free himself. Galvatron gives the order to destroy them and shoots the beast holding Scourge, managing to free him. But the beasts now turn their attention to the other Decepticons. The robotic Pteranodon grabs a sweep and just pecks at him with his beak. The giant cyborg bear grabs at Cyclonus, who almost gets away, but finds himself snagged by giant metal claws as we arrive at our first commercial break. Whew! That's a lot. So these monsters are unleashed on the Decepticons. <laughs> and now since we're dealing with monsters dreamed up in a Quintesson lab millions of years ago, we find we're being shown commercials for other monsters. <laughs> and mimicking the transorganics creation is something you can do at home with the Mad Scientist Monster Lab. Bad scientist! It's finished! 
created the Monster Lab, and it seems too gross. First, you put monster flesh on their creepy little bones. Then pour flesh remover into the Monster Lab and bubble off their slab. Too yucky. Look this nasty guy. See? And look for more of my ghost reactions so you too can be a mad scientist. The Monster Lab. Too gross. <laughs> This one's so much better than the other Mad Scientist commercial you showed me. Mm-hmm. But I don't, I think one of my sibs had this set. And if I remember right, you could actually recombobulate the monster's skeleton into different forms and then put that green putty all over it. If I remember right, you could do that. But I like the fact that it's just like, let's make two humanoid ones. Like They put the first one in and it bubbles off. And they're like, then the kid's like, check this one out. I'm like, yeah, it looks just like the first one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, but okay. I guess you put on a little bit more of that green schmutz. But yeah, yeah, it's fun to do gross things when you're 12. So <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll take it. Well, if you want your Transformers to fight giant tendrilled monsters in your very own bedroom, then let this commercial for the Inhumanoids tendril give you some playing ideas. From the depths of Earth comes the barbaric and humanoid tendril, devastating everything in his path. After that overgrown octopus! Inhumanoids! Inhumanoids! The evil that lies within! Help me, Earth! Grab my line! Where's Grenox? There he is! Nasty, nasty creatures! Tendril will crush you! Tendril and other figures sold separately from Hasbro. Inhumanoids! Oh man, you did you have any of the actual Inhumanoids, the big monsters? None, zero, zip. Me neither, but I knew kids who did, and I just remember being so blown away by how big they were. Mm. Like they just they felt huge compared to what we had had up to that point. I mean, we were playing with three and three quarter inch GI Joes, right? And I, I we've talked about in past episodes. I mostly only had mini bots, so to have something that was like fifteen inches tall and a mm. monster and like. And he, I think he, like, the, he had like the little glowy bits on his face, like if you put light on him in just the right way or something. Mm. He was cool. Tentral was awesome. I'll, I'll take him. He's, he's no decomposed, but he's not nothing. <laughs> or you can pretend you're a Quintesson scientist who lost a face in battle and use the monster face maker to rebuild your second face. <laughs> monster face, the gruesome monster head you make and remake into the most monstrous monsters imaginable. No. I don't remember this at all. This thing is frightening as all get out. <laughs> yeah, it was new to me too. Oh man, it's upsetting. Let's, let's, like he's got like this giant pus thing on the side of his skull that you can make pulsate and drip goo. It's like yeah, every twelve year old kid in the United States wanted this. But the the best part is that it plays into this idea that was so essential to being a little boy back then was frighten people. <laughs> so it's like going to the kitchen. Oh, there's mom. Why is she dressed like June Cleaver from Leave It to Beaver? Doesn't matter. Scare her. <laughs> she was making you lunch, you little jerks. And you scared her with that severed head with the pulsating globules and whatever. Uh, but I, w- I would have been all over it when I was 12. So yes, I'll take that one too. <laughs> oh, I guess uh, three out of three ain't bad. Yeah, ring your bells, everybody. <laughs> Well, let's get back to the show to see what's happening with the poor Decepticons. My poor little Decepticons. <laughs> As we return, Cyclonus calls for help. Galvatron, stop it! No! 
But Galvatron has his hands full, jumping around the beast with great agility, but barely eluding their grasp, tensely declaring that there's just too many of them. Yeah, I want to underline this in Black Cran is like we rarely get to see Galvatron do anything amazing outside of turn into cannon mode and blow up planets. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's mostly what we've seen him do. He's punched a bunch of people, like punched mostly his subordinates. But this is like, whoa, he suddenly seems very, very skilled. And it's kind of refreshing to see him that way. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he's basically like, all y'all are on your own. I'm out of here. There's too many of them. <laughs> We cut away to the Autobots walking through the caves underneath the shaft. Not even Cup was aware that there was anything down here, and Springer notes that nothing seems to have been touched for centuries. But soon, a huge commotion is heard. The Autobots follow the sound and rush into a huge room to find the Decepticons getting trounced by giant monsters. For seconds, they're just paralyzed with shock. Yeah, I love this. I love that they took care to do this. Is There's this moment where they're walking through going like, man, this place is really underused and nobody's been down here for a long time. The walls are like this kind of like irregular green stone with these odd round, not windows. They almost look like they're like paintings of some sort that were left by the Quintessons. But then like Ultra Magnus holds up his hands like, hold it. And then they just shows the doorway down the hall and you just hear the monster noises and you hear... Scourge and a bunch of sweets going like, help me, Galvatron, help me. <laughs> and I love that they took the care to do that. Give us a moment, even though we just saw what was going on, give us a moment to imagine it just with the sound. You're listening to the terrified sounds of Decepticons. Once again, emphasizing this whole like horror motif of this episode. And then they walk in the room, and the first thing they see is a sweep who is grabbed from behind by the giant yellow bear. Remember, he has a buzzsaw for a mouth, and he's boring into the sweep's shoulder with his buzzsaw mouth. And we see the sweep's face, like, screaming from behind the claws. And then the bear throws the sweep across the camera, and we see him land in the foreground while we see the Autobots' horrified expressions. Like, look at RC. She's like, oh, my God. Mm-hmm. And we see the sweep's face slightly obscured by a foreground rock, and we see his shoulder all torn to bits, right? So I love that it's like, pushing into PG-13, but still reminding us, like, look, we're here to, like, make the kids feel spookiness and creepiness, but we're not here to shock them, right? Mm -hmm. So we're going to imply a lot of stuff, but we're also going to conceal a little bit. Like, let's be tasteful about it. It's not, we're not trying to do saw here, (laughs) right? We're trying to do something that just feels very atmospheric, spooky, and intense, and nightmarish, but not gratuitous. Mm -hmm. So I, I love that implication, they're implying things here. And also, it's Toei. It looks terrific. This episode is so good to watch. And the beasts quickly take note of the new entrance into the room, and they turn their attention to the Autobots, ignoring the Decepticons. Galvatron takes the opportunity to get out of there, blowing a hole in the wall, allowing he, Cyclonus, and the five sweeps to escape, but not back the way they came. They've gotten away, but now they're lost. And worse still, what's that eerie sound? <laughs> Cyclonus notes that they're not alone as they all frightenedly look around. We see a metal tendril looking similar to Dr. Octopus's metal arm slowly wrap around a sweep and lift him into the air. The sweep screams, glows, and fades to gray. Fades to gray? The only time we've seen that happen was in the movie when Optimus died. Did we just see a sweep die? As this happens, we see the new creature that the tendril is attached to. You want to tackle the description on this one? 
Yeah, I sure do because I love this scene because yeah, it's they're in a dark, spooky room, and I love that it was Cyclonus with. Is this still Roger C. Carmel? I think it is. I believe so. And he says, there's something in this chamber. You know, I love that line so much. It's like, there's something in here. Yeah, there is Cyclonus. I love that you said it the way you said it, because with your creepy voice, it's extra creepy. <laughs> and then we see two eyes light up in the darkness behind one of the sweeps just before it grabs him, right? That's also a classic thing, but it, it totally works. And then we see this thing. It looks, it's like, I want to say about five times the height of a Decepticon. It may be like a little bit taller than one of the combiners. And it's a brown worm with a metal sarlacc pit for a mouth. Mm -hmm. And it's wearing, this is going to sound silly, but it actually works in the design. It's got like this odd, like mechanical vest. Like the Doc Ock comparison is very accurate. It looks like mm -hmm. the, the Steve Ditko Doc Ock harness with four metallic arms coming out of it. But then what's important is there's four sort of like, chambers on a backpack on this thing's back so it's a giant leech monster looking thing with cybernetic parts so this is definitely a transorganic i have a, I have a feeling this is the one that ripped off the face of our two-faced quintesson friend now having to face another nightmarish creature gavatron only remarks Yell it. straightforward and to the point <laughs> But before the creature can be shot, it shoots out of its mouth a web which surrounds a sweep like a net. The sweep screams, glows, then fades to gray. We see the creature place the gray sweeps into a sort of metal backpack using its metal tendrils. And then the beast screams and lunges at Galvatron. A tendril wraps around the Decepticon leader as he begins to glow as he screams. <laughs> Thankfully, Galvatron is able to wiggle out of the beast's grip and fires on it, proclaiming they stand a better chance against the other creatures they just retreated from. So the remaining Decepticons flee back the way they came. However, this leads the giant energy leech into the room with the Autobots, and Ultramagnus is the first to see it. But not quick enough to act. The leech spits another web, fully trapping Ultramagnus, who screams and begins to glow. Luckily, Rekgar jumps in, shouting, He slices the net away with his axe, freeing Ultra Magnus, but getting himself caught in a second web. Rekgar glows as the leech turns to watch the Decepticons flee. But the Decepticons aren't quite quick enough, and the last sweep out the doorway is ensnared in the leech's tentacle. He screams as he begins to glow. As Rekgar glows in the grip of another tentacle, he struggles to say, Can't this be the end of little Rekgar? Oh no! The sweep and the Junkion fade to gray as they are both slipped into the beast's backpack. It then moves towards another skirmish in the room. It's also worth noting here as we watch this, one, two things. One, we're, we've now switched to season three music. And I, I actually, I, I hope that was intentional. I like that they, the first act is all season one music. And now it's like, oh, we got the intense dun, 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 kind of music going on because the threat has been activated, right? We've got our monster that we're going to face. It's also a lot more black is getting used in this scene. 
which I think is really nice. I don't usually like a lot of black shading in my Sunbow shows. Like that's actually one of my beasts within humanoids. They use a lot of black shading, which kind of looks funny when you have characters move around a lot and the mm. shading kind of like it's like you could see it sort of getting bloopy and and it moves weird. Yeah. But here it just looks fabulous and it, and it really contributes to making this energy leech, this dweller in the depths that much more frightening. Like when you look at that shot of him putting Retgar in the sweep in his backpack, he looks great. Surprisingly, the leech then grabs two of the other beasts, the Tendrilla and the Metal Claw Snake. As it grasps them, both fade to gray, but it's even worse. Any non-metal organic parts on the creatures just completely disappear. Only the metal parts are left and they fall to the ground. This just went from scary to a whole other level. This is implying that anything organic that gets touched by this, it will not just die, but... It disintegrates. Disintegrate, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and they do it right on camera and they emphasize it by letting the metal parts just fall limply to the ground. Mm-hmm. And I like that you noticed this because like when you said like earlier, when he sucked the energy out of those transformers, they just turned gray and he put them in his backpack. Okay. So are they dead or not? What's happening there? But then like we see that the other transorganics clearly die. <laughs> that, mm-hmm. that ape thing is gone. Yep. It, it, all it's left is his metal arms and they just fall to the ground. So now there's a direct implication. Once again, imply, imply, imply. Don't be too explicit about these things. But they just imply that, yeah, you just watched Rekgar die, everybody. Sorry, he's dead. What? Well, RC and Springer watch the metal pieces shower the ground as the leech seems to revel in its feast. Seriously, he looks like he wants to unbutton his pants after Thanksgiving (laughs) dinner. It's a nice shot, like this dramatic upshot of the creature, and its arms are like moving slowly across the screen. And it's got that dramatic shadow on it and everything. Just and then plus you've got like the background of the, the chamber with those weird like pores on the ceiling behind him. It just looks so good. Springer, brave as can be, says Maybe there's still a chance to save Rekgar as he charges the beast. With great agility, he somersaults atop the creature and smashes into the beast's backpack, actually managing to lug out Rekgar's body. Come on, Rekgar, buddy! They haven't canceled your series yet! He actually manages to carry Rekgar back down to the ground, but before he can celebrate, the gray Rekgar's eyes glow red and he says, Rekgar places his hands on Springer, causing him to glow. The leech then grabs Springer in a tendril as he then fades to gray. Yeah, this looks so creepy. And the fact that he says, feed me, which is like Little Shop of Horrors, right? Mm-hmm. But it's so appropriate to the moment. And Rekgar, the silly character, now turned into a monster. It's so good. This, this scene like really got me when I was a kid. R.C. exclaims, That thing drains robots of their power like some kind of vampire. Then the ashen Rekgar walks up to the leech and places his hands on its tendril, allowing energy to be absorbed from him. And it looks so creepy. It looks so creepy that he like gets up and just slowly walks over with his hands kind of extended out and then just touches the leech and gives the energy they took from Springer to the leech. It has like this total like, like vampire servant, zombie monster... 
this feels almost like a John Carpenter kind of thing. I love it so much, Hoover. That that image is so upsetting that he just murdered Springer and then gave Springer's blood <laughs> to like the main vampire. <laughs> well, Magnus hatches a plan to lure the leech out of the chamber to get more room to fight. And just as they're about to escape, they find themselves blasted by Galvatron's fusion cannon. Leaving so soon? Cup and Magnus are knocked out by the blast. So Galvatron unleashes a second blast, which blocks off the escape tunnel he's in. And Galvatron laughs triumphantly. This leaves Arcee alone to take on this energy leech, but quickly she finds herself caught in its web. She transforms to vehicle mode in hopes of breaking through the net, but on top of that, the leech deplores the vampirified transformers from its backpack as they mindlessly shamble towards her, their red eyes glowing. R.C. can only scream as we arrive at our second commercial break. Holy moly. The fact that it ends with R.C. in such peril. She's got the net on her. And then she's surrounded by her friends and enemies but are all walking slowly forward like zombies with their arms out and their eyes all red like that. This is upsetting. This is really genuinely frightening. And, and, and it was, it was once again, I'm, I'm so here for it as an adult. And even as a kid, I loved it. We gotta, we gotta go buy toys in a second because that that's the ritual we perform here is that every like seven and a half to eight minutes we go and we go spend our parents' money. But before we go, before we go to Toys R Us or to KB or to God willing children's palace. Yes. There we go. I gotta know. Do you remember watching this as a kid and how you felt about this so far? Not really. I'm positive I saw it back then, but I don't remember any strong memories from it. Mm, okay. Well, let's just imagine that young Hoover's afraid, and then I go back in time and go to my young friend Hoover. I'm like, hey, buddy, it's going to be okay. It's just a cartoon. <laughs> and by the way, we're going to go spend money. And how does, that, how does young Hoover feel now? Mm, money. <laughs> <laughs> Well, now that we have vampires to deal with, we need to familiarize ourselves with their tactics. And what better way than playing the vampire game? <laughs> Will the princesses be saved? Will anyone get past the vampire? Will the garlic card fend off the fiend? Or will the vampire stick his fangs into it? All is revealed in The Vampire Game, with its vicious vampires, pretty princesses, and daring heroes. The Vampire Game from Washington's. You get bitten by it. <laughs> I have no memory of this game whatsoever. And who, who, who made the game? <laughs> yeah, it's... It's British for sure. I recognize okay. some staples of British commercials. Waddington. Waddington's Toys. <laughs> okay. So I don't know if we even got this in the U.S. It did not ring any bells for me. It looks cute. And the, the stamping effect, like the way that the vampire gets you, like when, the, when you listen to the commercial, everybody, there's a part like, oh, the vampire got you. And it just shows like the, the, there's like a vampire figure who's like a little, has a little stamping feature on him. Then he's like, you stamp the kid's hand and it puts like a little vampire bite mark on it. <laughs> And I think actually that's pretty cute. And I think I probably would have bought into the fantasy enough that I would have been like really scared to have that stamped on my hand. Not because I thought that I was actually going to turn into a vampire, but I would think that it's 
possibly going to hurt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, I'll take the vampire game. Yeah, let's, let's I don't know what international shipping is, but you know, it's my dad's <laughs> credit card. What what does it matter to me? Eh, who cares? <laughs> well, we'll need to study how people have defeated vampires in the past, and we'll see how it went down when the real Ghostbusters fought Frankenstein and Dracula. Let's scare someone. Who are you going to call? <laughs> We're here. So are we. The Frankenstein and Dracula monsters. Watch this. Get them, boys. Ghosts. Funny guy. Watch him scream. Ah, look out. Now your turn to scream. Fun's too scared. The real Ghostbusters. Ah. Each sold separately. New from Kenner. Fun to zap. So, I don't want to be that guy, Hoover. But I thought the Ghostbusters fought ghosts. Dracula's not a ghost. Frankenstein's monster is not a ghost. I remember these toys. I think one of my sibs might have had the Dracula. But they ain't ghosts, right? Or are they, is it ghost Dracula and ghost Frankenstein? Or is it just that like we're trying to level things up like a Quintesson kind of move? It's like, well, they fight ghosts, but now there's a third faction, and it's the monsters. <laughs> I don't know. It's like, hey, these are kind of horror-related, right? You know what's in the public domain and we could do for free? Yeah, yeah. Frankenstein and Dracula. <laughs> oh, this is... Oh, I got so much dissonance on this because I really... I was not... I liked the Ghostbusters movies. I watched the cartoon because I'll take my good animation any way I can get it. But I was never that much into Ghostbusters. But you know what I am into? I'm super into the Universal Monsters. So I kind of got to get, even though you got those kids doing those bad Carpathian accents. Yeah, I got to get the Dracula. I got to get the Dracula. (laughs) Or possibly just maybe violence and fighting isn't always the way. Mm. Maybe we can befriend the monsters somehow. And what better instance of befriending monsters than with my pet monster? (laughs) My pet monster. He's bigger than big. When he fights battles, he always wins. And he's your friend, too. He breaks his chains. Put him on you and break away, too. With my pet monster, you're busting loose. He's big. And scary. And helps people, too. And he's your friend, too. My pet monster plays all day. Tough. Awesome. Looking great. And all your friends will want him for their friend, too. My pet monster has breakaway chains from Amtoy and American Greetings Company. So I'm so glad you chose to end our shopping outing with this one because it really like is a perfect example of like why I think scary stories are actually good for children because it allows young people to play out some of the darker fantasies in their heads in a safe way. You know, because like the My Pet Monster, we've talked about this toy before, but what I love about it is like it's just like it exercises all of those little personalities boiling around inside of like a second grader's head. I like to break things. I'm breaking the chains, but he's also friendly. (laughs) (laughs) I knocked out all the plants in the living room, but I'm also a good boy. I'm not just one thing. I could be lots of things, right? My pet monster is an ugly little monster, but he's also a friend. So yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, I, I think I have like six, my pet monsters now after all of our commercial breaks, but (laughs) But I'm going to get one more monster. (laughs) I'm Barbie building my pet monster. That's right. 
I'll, I'll take one more. Hoover, I think you did it. I think you got all six. Collect them all. You win. Well, now you can hug your My Pet Monster as we return from commercial break to RC in peril. Yeah, hold on tight. As we come back, RC is trying as hard as she can to speed away, but the web has got her pinned pretty well. She yells for help from Cup, who's only just coming to from the way out, collapsing on top of him. He manages to transform to car mode and ram through the converted Autobots and Decepticons, now essentially energy vampires. He then drives through the web that's pinning RC, ripping it and freeing her. Unfortunately, the energy vampires manage to surround Cup and turn him into one of them. RC wants to help, but Magnus, having just come to himself, stops her, saying there's nothing that they can do for him right now. At least he didn't say, I can't deal with this right now. (laughs) Guys, this is a lot. (laughs) All they can do is just get back to Perceptor and hope that he can science a way out of this. Oh, boy, that sample had some dust on it. <laughs> this this is another scene that I found really upsetting as a child because the way Cup gets it. So first of all, she's like, Cup, help. And he's like, he, he's weakly. He's like, RC. And then he transforms into car mode and like sort of like pushes himself in action. You can, you can feel the effort it took him to get into car mode and to move in between RC and, and the monsters. And then he starts to zoom back to her and they grab him. Like they all like dogpile him and he transforms into robot mode to try to pull away. And all you hear is John Stevenson's weak scream and it cuts back to just a pile of gray robots. You hear Cup in that pile screaming and just like a little bit of glowing energy as Ultra Magnus says he can't deal with that now. Mm-hmm. So it's one of those things that like I, I think again, I'm not like a horror story aficionado, but I do think about this kind of thing of like when it's a good idea to pull away and make it feel like it's less horrific, more up to your imagination. It's less shocking, but it's more haunting. And that feels more haunting to me, mm-hmm. the way they handled that. It's so good. Well, Magnus uses his rockets to blow open the blocked exit, and he and RC manage to escape. We cut back to the Quintessons dreaming about their impending takeover of Cybertron as they predict that the Dweller has been unleashed by now. The bailiff-style Quint tells the scientist that he'll be rewarded for this plan, but all he wants is payback against the transorganic that took his second face. Yeah, and there's a neat scene here where he turns his head so you can see the second face, and it's got like this weird, creepy sort of, what would you call that kind of mask? Hoover, did you, when you were a little kid, did you know anybody who had like those porcelain clown faces on their walls? No. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about, though? Yeah. I, when I was in kindergarten, so this is like 1979, I got dropped off often at a babysitter's apartment in our apartment complex. Her living room was wood paneling, and I kid you not, a whole bunch of porcelain clown faces all over the wall, like, like ceiling to floor. It was like, like <laughs> 30 of them. Well, I'm, I'm exaggerating from my like little four-year-old perspective, but it was like probably like 10 of them. And I just remember like, I don't want to go over to Margie's house. I don't want to go to Margie's house because there's that horror wall waiting for me when I walk in there. You know, It's like, no, go have a good time. It's not a good time. Anyway, this, this, this mask kind of feels like that. Like, it's got like this weird kind of implacable 
inhuman look to it, kind of a Phantom of the Opera kind of vibe. And that's only emphasized by the fact that when he says, all I want is revenge on the thing that did this to me, and he takes the mask off and you see his destroyed face. Now, it doesn't look as horrific as in the flashback originally, but it's still, there's head and no face and just yeah. robot stuff behind it. So now what I love about this, whether Mr. Dini meant it or not, I'm going to say he did because Paul Dini really knew what he was doing. He's a monster too, right? The monster who's disfigured and is bent on some kind of horrendous revenge. And that's got to come back to get him somehow, maybe. But yeah, I this image has really stood with me for a long time. That, that creepy, expressionless mask and then the destroyed face underneath it and the expression of how he wants vengeance and how he perhaps brought this up as a plan not because he's necessarily on board with the Quintessons plans to overtake Cybertron. Maybe, maybe that, maybe that's a side benefit to what he really wants, which is to kill the dweller. Well, then we cut away to the Decepticons who have managed to get lost again in their attempt to get back to the surface. Now, where are they lost, Hoover? I wonder if you can, you could take a stab at describing this room that they're in. Well, again, it's not anything like the surface of Cybertron. There's yeah. like, almost like coils and walkways and the the term labyrinthian comes to mind. Yeah. Yeah. And like, doesn't that, that shape in the middle almost look like a coffin shape? Yeah. It's like, there's like these weird tracks of twisted metal. And then there's these giant protrusions of something that looks like it was built. So it's, it's clearly a metallic shape that was built, but its function is not clear. And it looks like, again, like a nightmare image of crisscrossing walks that are all twisted and bending, and they're not geometric in the way Cybertron is geometric. This is like drunk Floro Derry drew this, <laughs> right? And again, I want to keep hammering on this idea of, I love that they're visually transmitting the same kind of feeling that I, as a nine-year-old, had when the notion of going into the basement came up. Go down in the basement. Hell no. I'm going to find this down there, <laughs> right? And I love that the Decepticons are lost in this weird, twisted, underworld kind of thing. This looks so good. Well, once the Decepticons get on the path that they assume is correct, they find themselves face-to-face with the energy vampires, the former Autobots and Decepticons. Galvatron shoots each one of them one by one, and they all fall. Galvatron smirks, thinking that that was easy. However, the vampire's eyes glow red again as they all come back to life and stand up. It's not possible! They seem drawn to us by our energy life force. Stop them! I don't care how, just stop them! Then Galvatron, in an act of self-preservation, grabs one of the two sweeps that he has left and tosses him at the vampires. And instantly, the sweep's energy is absorbed, and he is turned into just another foe. Apparently not seeing the futility of this, Galvatron grabs his last sweep. Yeah, be a good soldier, help him! Galvatron, no! I bid you! Gavitron hurls his soldier at the vampires in order to buy some time. As the sweep's energy is drained, Gavitron and Cyclonus hightail it out of there. This is just, I mean, 
Galvatron has already, we've spent a lot of time talking about how he's like abusive dad to the Decepticons at this point. He's, he's not a good leader in the sense that, you know, the way Megatron was. But this also feels like a motif from zombie movies. Like, so this is where like, they're, the, they're both vampires, but they're also like zombies in the fact that they're shambling. They don't really talk a whole lot. They could shoot them, but they get back up kind of thing. If they touch you or bite you, you turn into one of them kind of thing. But I think of this, this motif that I've seen in, I th it feels like something I've seen in a lot of zombie movies, but at the very least, I remember this happening in Train to Busan, which if you haven't seen it and you like zombie movies, everybody, that's a good one. Almost everybody watched it. But there's like a guy who like literally starts grabbing teenagers and throwing them at the horde <laughs> to like buy himself some time. And you just, you just can't wait for that guy to get it. <laughs> he's such, he's such a creep, you know? So yeah, it, it feels like this, this, I remember sensing this even as a child, even as a kid who had just, just begun his foray into scary movies. Like I've seen this before. This feels familiar, but it also feels utterly nightmarish because Galvatron, you must know that all you're doing is making more villains by doing that. But is he, he, but it shows how panicked he is. I don't care. Just stop him. Please. Somebody go. Yeah. I'll throw you guys at it. I don't care. Anything to get me out of here. He's scared. We're actually seeing frightened Galvatron. We haven't seen this since web world. And as the Decepticons run, the web of the huge energy leech transorganic is shot after them. On a second try, it snags Cyclonus and drains his energy as he screams, Can't free! Help me, Galvatron! Help me! Galvatron stops to watch his lieutenant get turned into yet another vampire. And he actually has sort of a pained and frightened look on his face yeah yeah and then he turns to run meanwhile ultra magnus and rc have found an exit to the surface but it's rusted shut thankfully that's what missiles are for so magnus attempts to blow it open however one blast doesn't do it and the giant leech creature crashes through the wall behind them sending them fleeing in another direction as they turn down a hallway they come across galvatron I don't know what that thing is back in the tunnels, but even if it gets me as well, I'll die with the satisfaction that the universe will have two more Autobots to mine! So Magnus and Galvatron get into it, and remember how we've been bragging about the animation this episode? Well, as it's progressed, it's gotten a little sloppier and sloppier. It never falls down to ACOM level, but this battle is animated pretty badly. Mm. Magnus throws Galvatron down the hallway, and just as Galvatron's about to open fire on the Autobots, he's grabbed from behind by a tentacle of the Leech Beast. Galvatron begins to glow, and Magnus is quickly encased in a web from the creature and begins to glow himself, desperately clawing at the web to escape. In the meantime, RC picks up Galvatron's fusion cannon, which came off in the struggle, and blasts the leech multiple times with it, severing the web and sending the creature back through the wall. Yeah, that, that fight scene was pretty clunky, but I've always loved how this looks when RC picks up Galvatron's cannon. Because first of all, it's like it's almost as big as her. It's it's mm -hmm. quite it's pretty big gun. And then like when she fires it, it actually throws her back against a wall. And it, I'm reminded of when Braun did that yeah. with Megatron's fusion yeah. cannon. I like that that's repeated here. Like the kickback on this thing is something fierce and you have to be a powerful robot to wield it. So it, it's pretty nice. And, and I like that like even 
RC getting thrown around like she's riding a horse trying to fire this thing. She's more successful with it than Galvatron was to, to send the energy creature running away. But it's it, I've always thought this was nice looking, at least. Well, RC revives Magnus, who is weak, but otherwise okay. They note that the leech is headed in the direction of the power core. Choosing to leave the unconscious Galvatron behind, who was spared his vampiric fate by RC's attack, the two Autobots escape with the vampires slowly shambling after them. Now back at the Autobot HQ on Cybertron, Perceptor detects that something underground is sapping the planet's energy, and it's moving straight towards the power core. And then suddenly Magnus and RC burst in with the details. Rodimus. The Decepticons have let loose some kind of living energy leech, and anything the beast touches becomes an energy vampire as well. We've got to destroy that thing before Cybertron becomes a dead husk. And just then, the shambling vampire Autobots and Decepticons barge in. Magnus tries to hold them off while Perceptor assesses the situation. A massive power load should bring their imbalance up to normal. We have to form a chain. And then the Autobots all hold hands in a line as Perceptor does the equivalent of sticking his finger in a light socket. <laughs> the vampires all touch the shocked Autobots who radiate with power. This crazy plan works and the vampires all resume their normal colors as their red eyes fade to normal. They all have no memory of what happened and so the Decepticons all flee. As they escape to space, they run into their leader. Galvatron, I'm relieved you got away, my lord. Yes, I have a score to settle with some deceitful Quintessons. I still don't know why they lured us down there, but perhaps releasing that beast wasn't such a bad idea after all. We pan down to Cybertron, where the energy leech is now ripping through the ground of Cybertron coming up to the surface. Autobots try to fend off the creature by firing at it, but it manages to make its way to the power core. If it latches onto the power core, there will be no stopping it. All right, we get rid of the power core. You mean jettison the entire thing into space? It's the only way. Well, good thing we have Chekhov's lever then. <laughs> the leech literally bites into the power core as Rodimus gives the order to eject it. Chekhov's lever is pulled, and the entire silo holding the core is fired into space along with the creature. We cut to the Quintessons in their ship, who are puzzled by their sensors saying Cybertron still has energy. Surely the transorganics would have sucked the place dry by now. They see something on the viewscreen coming their way. Something organic and metallic combined. Uh-oh. Yep, it's the giant leech creature who wraps his tentacles around the Quintesson shuttle as the Quintesson screams. Yeah, so like this whole scene here where it just ends with like, we're, we're going to get a reprise of this, but it like sort of just like hugs the ship. Mm -hmm. And then you just hear the Quintesson screaming inside as the whole ship is like, like the lights are flickering on it. But it totally echoes the Jason Voorhees is put back into the bottom of the lake. Or Frankenstein's monster is frozen in ice at the bottom of the pit kind of thing. This idea of like, well, we didn't really kill the monster. We just kind of put it in a place where it can't get at us for a while. Mm -hmm. Suggesting that the monster can return, which is something else I love about these kinds of... I mean, there aren't many horror stories that end really happily, 
right? And my favorites, are the ones that end ambiguously. And my next favorite is the one that suggests like, whoo, okay, we put him, we put him in a room for a while. <laughs> Hopefully he doesn't come back. <laughs> well, back on Cybertron, Perceptor shifts the planet to auxiliary power, which should be enough until they can construct a new power core. RC says it's a small price to pay for them getting rid of the creature and managing to survive. And we go out with the image of the leech clinging to the Quintesson shuttle in space. And that's that, aside from a two-minute bio on the Decepticons. So, it's not bad. It's pretty good. It's basically a Transformers monster movie, which is pretty cool. Unfortunately, doing that trope makes the focus of this episode as simple as running from the monster, so that can get a bit repetitive and monotonous. And I'm not a huge horror fan, unless it's got like a super creative spin on it. So if you're big time into horror movies and Transformers, this may be a favor for you. It certainly starts out looking beautiful, which is a very welcome change of pace in Season 3. Unfortunately, the quality dips as the episode progresses, but like I said, it never goes down to ACOM levels. <laughs> it's nice to get more Quintesson backstory, letting us know that the Transformers were not the first Quintesson creations. And the whole vendetta of the Two-Face Quint is a wonderful story detail to include. But beyond that, it's kind of just a lot of running down tunnels and almost getting turned into vampires, and if that's going to be the main thrust of your episode... I think you got to go whole hog and really push the limits of how scary you can make this. Which is difficult to do with a cartoon for 10 year olds, sure. But let's just thank God the ACOM didn't get their hands on it. <laughs> I can only imagine what globby messes all the creatures would have been. And the pacing yeah. and the cuts just would have ruined everything, I'm sure. The delivery of lines is pretty good in this one. Galvatron definitely portrays a range of emotion in all these situations, but it wasn't quite the tour de force that Webworld was. So, I think it was a good concept. I think it'd make a fantastic video game. So much of it really feels like a Resident Evil-style game, where a monster has a hold of you, and all you can do is shake loose and run, maybe into an even worse monster. I can even see the quick time events. Press X to throw sweep. <laughs> but as with most of season three, I think it just needed longer in the oven. In another pass, you ramp up the dread, be more creative with the monster fights, make it more than just, woo, we got away. Oh no, here it is again, coming through the wall. <laughs> I mean, the leech monster has basically two attacks, tendril grab and web spit. Maybe it wouldn't seem so repetitive if they gave it more different abilities. Maybe throw in some scenes where Autobots and Decepticons have to work together in there, like Magnus and Cyclonus touch on that pairing again. Something to spice it up with a bit of variety. And what a letdown to have Perceptor know the exact way to cure the infected vampires ten seconds after they come through the door. I know the guy is smart and all, but this is a horror movie. We need tension. But the plot gets at least an A, and the animation in the first segment at least gets an A+. Now, just like numerous other episodes this season, you run a few more passes on the script and you could really make this one an absolute gem. Overall, I'd put this at a B+, super close to an A. Like, oh, you got an 89 on this. Oh, so close to an A. <laughs> this all probably sounds harsh, 
But keep in mind the other Season 3 episodes we've had to endure recently. This may only be a B+, but it's practically valedictorian of the season. Web World is definitely better in my opinion, but not many others from Season 3. So graded honestly, B+. But a B plus hanging out with C's, C minuses, and F's. So think of it like that. <laughs> so what do you what do you think about this one, Jersey? Yeah, well, I, I said at the top, this is one of my very favorite ones because of the I don't want to say courageous step into doing a monster movie, but it 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 does feel compared to what we had been getting up to this point. I don't just mean in Transformers, I mean in all cartoons. Scary motifs really weren't dealt with in like straight up scary or spooky back then, right? Like you had like the Drac pack, which I loved as a kid, <laughs> but it was really, it was a comical take on monsters. The, the real Ghostbusters, you had a little bit of the spooky stuff in it, but it was still like, don't quote me on this because I haven't watched it in a long time, but my memory of it was that it still had like a, a goofy kind of flair to it. Although I know there are at least a couple episodes that genuinely get into like spooky territory. Filmation's Ghostbusters, which I love because anything Lou Scheimer touched was had nothing but goodness in its heart, was silly, you know? So to do something that really felt like, oh, this feels like they're actually leaning into the, the, the spookiness and the horror aspect, I feel like really makes it stand apart. I think the implied mythological kinds of or maybe maybe you could say archetypal kind of ideas of the spooky basement like i've been talking about over and over again the fact that it was visually all the visual cues they were giving to telegraph and deliver so that you receive this heaviness and spookiness and dread to it i think for its time and given the restrictions it was under are very well done. So to amend your grading, when you say B plus, it's also like, holy cow, at a time when they were really cranking this stuff out, Paul Dini turned in a B plus, right? Yeah. This guy's first, first draft is so good <laughs> that it comes out looking like this, mm -hmm. you know, that's talent. So I feel like, in response, I feel like there's a Transformers episode that exists in response to all of your critiques of this one, and that one is called Thirst in Transformers Prime. I don't know if you remember this one. It's been a while since we watched it, but Starscream and Knockout accidentally create vampires on the Decepticon warship. That's right, yeah. And they're, and they're called Terracons, and they do a really good job of doing the exact same kind of story where they're on the run, running down hallways, trying to escape the, the ever-growing vampire horde, but there's all these wonderful comical moments where they bump into Megatron and he's like, he's, he's he, Megatron does the whole, like you're scheming something. It starts. He's like, what me? No, no, I would never do such Lily. But at the same time, it's like, there's dad, tell dad that the vampires in the ship so we could do something about it. You know, <laughs> it's a wonderful moment of bonding between Starscream and knockout where they think they're going to die. So they confess their, like their admiration for one another. <laughs> It's really, really good, and it's also genuinely disturbing. I would hesitate to tell people to watch it without watching the rest of Transformers Prime because there's also a couple scenes of some like long-form narrative payoff in it, mm. which I uh, I got mixed feelings on. I, I like my stuff episodic. I, I think that I'm getting a little sick and tired of every television show demanding that I watch every episode to understand it, but I get it. That that's what That's where people's tastes are, but... Anyway, I feel like this one and Thirst are like a perfect, like 
hour-long watch if you want to have like friends over and you want to take a break from your scary movie marathon, you know, watch these two episodes in between the movies to mm-hmm. get like, that flavor of like a kid's show and how they do it. I, and I think, again, I, I, I really admire the fact they played it straight. Yeah. They absolutely played it honestly, and, and that felt good. And it felt like Paul Dini really knows how to draw on sort of like universal human ideas mm-hmm. to make it feel safe yet unnerving for children. And again, I want to, I do want to close on this thought too, is that I, I do think that, and I'm saying this is somebody who's writing a horror comic for children right now, like my book, Baron Von Bear, which everybody should go subscribe to the newsletter. It's at baronvonbear.com. How do I describe it? It's Indiana Jones in reverse, but a horror motif. So he's, he's taking the cursed objects and putting them back in the world because of reasons that you find out in the book anyway. But yeah, I'm thinking about this a lot. It's like, what's too much? And how do I play on the types of things that I found scary as a child in a way that feels like it's a safe exploration of what are monsters? Monsters are the dark parts of our psyches. Monsters are the things inside of us that we're afraid to confront and to look at. And this is the the scene with Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader on Dagobah where he runs into the Darth Vader, cuts the head off, and the face falls off, and it's Luke's face, right? Mm-hmm. That's in you. Right, that's what monsters are about, and that's why I like the idea that the Quinnison has like the broken face. He's a monster too. We all have the potential to be monsters. Even Retgar, even silly old Retgar, has the has the potential to be a monster, and that's what these stories represent for me as a way to like engage with that idea in a safe way. This is why I love children's fiction. Now, I also you you mentioned that you're not a big horror movie guy. Yeah. I'm not into gore movies and I'm certainly not into like realistic, like Henry portrait of a serial killer or any home invasion kind of movies. And I'm, I'm not into those, but I do love being a monster movie. I love supernatural stuff. I love monster movies. And my favorite scary movie of all time, which I probably mentioned is the Prince of darkness. And one thing that the Prince of darkness, John Carpenter's sort of cult movie from 1987 is it does like the sort of like, it's like a devil movie, but it's also a zombie movie and it's also a vampire movie. It's all that mixed in like it with this like weird, like vaguely Lovecrafty kind of thing going on in it. But what I love about it, and this is, this addresses one of the other critiques of this episode, Hoover, when you talk about Magnus and Cyclonus is it's the movie where all the monsters are descending upon you in the house, but the whole group cast of characters works together instead of fighting amongst themselves which i feel like is a motif in like zombie movies like in a zombie movie there's always be that creep who jeopardizes the group by being selfish no don't open that window ah you get pulled out and they're pulling all of his guts out of his middle you know in in prison of darkness they're all literally do everybody's doing their best to try to support one another and keep each other alive in the face of the growing monster horde so i do agree that how cool would it have been in the third act if maybe Galvatron got taken, you know, mm. and then Cyclonus and Magnus have to team up Yeah. because, because Magnus would have, would have the card to play. It's like the only way we're going to be able to restore Galvatron is if we work together. Yep. Well, when Good you put idea. it that way, boom, now you mm. get this amazing fight scene where Ultra Magnus and Cyclonus are being awesome and fighting off monsters, right? That would be really satisfying. And we would and have I could see, toys. like, once Galvatron is revived at the end, he's like, how did you save me? And it's like, Cyclonus like is, like, trying not to mention that Ultra Magnus <laughs> helped. I just pushed all my loyalty in my arms, Galvatron. <laughs> <laughs> and then Galvatron's like, you see, he knows how to do it. And he hits a sweep. <laughs> That'd be a good ending. Yeah, because in my in my opinion... 
like the first half of this is strong and then it just turns into like a lot of running and you know that's that's what a monster movie is so i'm not faulting paul dini for that but you needed to throw something in the last half that sort of gets your attention aside from oh they're running from the monster they're still running now they're running the other way because the monster surprised them you know it's like yeah put something in there like a decepticon autobot team up to sort of keep the interest level up yep and that would have been a great way to do it this is yeah these kinds of stories the the big problem that you run into is once the monster is revealed and on the loose you've just got a chaos engine Mm -hmm. at work and so it's really just going to be run away from the monster. Oh, he almost got you. Run away from the monster. Oh, he almost got you. You can't break that tension with very much. Like this is where some of like the bad Friday the Thirteenth movies come into play. I'm not going to name which ones are bad because I don't. I don't want to like put my opinion out there <laughs> like that. Like to like say like you like number five, you suck. <laughs> but but my point is that like when you when you try to break that tension in ways that feel clumsy and it's just like well we just can't keep it falling down a hill this way. Right, like it, it, it is a problem, and I think that Transformers has an advantage in that this is really an action cartoon for for kids about robots. So mm-hmm. do the horror thing, but let's lean right back into the action adventure story for kids with yeah. the robots and have them do some amazing stuff. And that would, and that would make it even better. Because like if you had a situation where okay, here's we're gonna get all fanficy even more. Magnus and Cyclonus are working together, and then Cyclonus realizes that the only way their plan will succeed is if he sacrifices himself to give Magnus a chance to get away because he knows mm. that Magnus will make good on his promise. You promise to restore Galvatron? I promise. And then he just lets himself fall into the monsters. Yeah, there you go. And then, yeah, so like you could have that drama of like, oh, it just got way worse. The monsters are certainly going to get Ultra Magnus now, but then they solve the problem with, you know, Perceptor's weird little stick the finger in the light socket trick. <laughs> Science! Yeah, yeah, I, I guess that was the only thing that was really missing was a little bit more clarity on the differences between the characters. We certainly find out that Galvatron is a, a creep from top to bottom. <laughs> mm-hmm. He throws his own kids into the monsters in order to get away, you know. We know that the good guys are good, but we don't really get a sense of like the character dynamics all that much between them other than mm-hmm. I'm scared and let's get away. So, yeah, yeah. That, that, that's a fair point. So... And, and that's actually a, crit- a critique people have about Prince of Darkness is you really don't learn that much about anybody in the story. But when you get a hand bone like like Donald Pleasance in it, it's like you don't <laughs> need he's going to he's going to chew the scenery so bad anyway that it's going to be great. I love Donald Pleasance Hoover. I love him so much. But anyway, yeah, I, I, I remember loving this one as a kid. I still love it. I feel like it, it, it really, you know, critiques aside, it stands pretty tall. As a, as a science fiction cartoon episode, it does something that feels, comparatively speaking, very daring for its time. It feels solid in that it's got a lot of, like, it leans on the visuals and the script at the same time to deliver this kind of spooky, eerie, like, almost psychological, mythological kind of horror story. So, yeah, it's it still remains one of my very favorite episodes of all time. I love that ending, too. I love the ending of the, the Quintessons, like, leaving it kind of ambiguous. Are they alive or dead? Well, mm-hmm. all the lights in the ship are off yeah. <laughs> when you see that last shot of the dweller just hugging it, floating in deep space. <laughs> so, 
Yeah, it's 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 a, it's a good one. Well, one interesting thing that was pointed out by the TF Wiki, which is at tfwiki.net. Aquinason says, Through the ages, many groups of Aquinasons have tried to retake Cybertron, but none have succeeded. And then the wiki says, Their efforts must have been very subtle, as nobody on either the Autobot or Decepticon sides has had any awareness of them over the last nine million years. There was even a four million year period where most of them were offline on a distant planet, yet they still don't seem to have done much about this ambition. Unless Shockwave and his crew fended them off and never told anyone. Ah. That got me thinking that would make so much sense. If the Quintessons are always watching, then they likely saw Cybertron get less populated around 4 million years ago, and they could have shown up and tried retaking the planet when Shockwave was running things. That's a mm. cool idea. Mm-hmm. And since he isn't even in Season 3, he isn't among the Decepticons who don't recognize the Quintessons in Five Faces of Darkness. And who's the only one who thought they looked vaguely familiar? Blitzwing. So you can have Blitzwing be on Cybertron with Shockwave for some of those battles. Maybe just a few, since Blitzwing clearly was only vaguely familiar with the Quintessons. And let's face it, Blitzwing isn't known for his amazing intellect and recall ability. <laughs> But I think that's a really cool idea. You need Shockwave to do more than fend off female Autobots for 4 million years. And this jigsaw piece fits perfectly well in that 4 million year hole. So there, one line from Aquinason opens up lots of story possibilities, proving that this is still a universe that there's lots of room to tell stories in, even years and years later. What I love about that is the idea that the Quintessons could show up and maybe even like be completely honest and be like, hey, Shockwave, we, we made you. We made Cybertron. You should let us have the planet back. And Shockwave's like, only Megatron gets the planet. Like, I don't, even, <laughs> I don't even care if dad comes home. Oh, you're you're my dad, are you? Well, you're not Megatron, so up yours. Get out of here. <laughs> only Megatron. Only Megatron. Are you this guy? He points at the picture on the wall with all the kiss marks all over it. No, you're not. Go home. I'm shooting you. And that would explain why the place is so wrecked up, too, right? It's like... Cybertron shall remain as you leave it. Well, I also got attacked a whole bunch of times by these weirdos. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, and they don't even have to explain who they are. I mean, you'd think if they said, hey, we're your creators. I mean, Shockwave might have mentioned that, hey, while you were gone, these guys <laughs> claiming to be our creator showed up. But, yeah. I mean, if they don't explain that, then Shockwave yeah. just fends them off as another alien race. So yeah. Yep. There's definitely room to plug that in. I think that's cool. Unfortunately, I mean, you know, there's been lots of comic stories about Transformers since the animated series, but no one seems to want to play in the animated universe. I mean, of course, Beast Wars is a sequel happening many, many, many years later. Mm -hmm. But I want comics that happen in the cartoon continuity. That's, yeah. that's what I really want. Same here. Of course, I don't want if drama. I got them, they probably wouldn't live up to what I wanted, and so I'd be <laughs> angry. But, but yeah, how come no one wants to play in the cartoon universe? I don't know. With that new G.I. Joe comic that just came out, where it's like all done in the animated style, mm -hmm. it just feels like... G.I. Joe Saturday Morning Adventures, kids. Look into it. Yeah, I just feel like the time is ripe. They, they, they made the case. Look at how good that looks. I don't want to draw the characters that I'm not... Although... 
I think G.I. Joe suffered this less than Transformers, like the, the irregularity between the different animation studios. Like, I guess I could, like, you know, sign, find some kind of in-between between Tohei and Acom to make the job a little easier for me. <laughs> it's like, look, look, Cyclonus changes, his model changes like six times, but, you know, that's how the show was. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, that, I would love some... I mean, and that was the thing as a kid. I, I, I love the Transformers comic series now. I have two complete runs of the Marvel series. I don't know why I have two, but I do. But as a kid, I remember being really bummed out that they were so different, and I would have loved an ongoing comic that told stories in between mm-hmm. of the of the cartoon series and episodically. I I would love like it's a done in one story. Here you go. That'd be super fun, or a five parter of like Quintesson incursion and Shockwave fending them off, and him having to fend for himself and say, "What would Megatron do?" Yeah. Oh, that would be so much fun. Well, we can dream. Yeah. And then and then the next thing I'd wish for, Genie, is the Trapped <laughs> in the Cave series where all the all the characters that we put in the cave to find out like where they where they discover their similarities would happen too. All right. Well, what do we got next, Suv? Well, next up, it's a little episode called Only Human. Which is season three, episode twenty-three on Tubi. Now, do we want to telegraph at all anything special about this episode? Is there anything mm, that people should be particularly excited about? I would say about? probably most people listening to us know what this is, so we don't need to. <laughs> okay. And the ones who don't know can be surprised. Definitely, if you are if you've never watched the entire series and you're listening to us talk about it, if you don't remember this one, for the love of God, go watch it. Mm-hmm. This is one is like a not miss episode. This is one where I know Hoover and I stood up at the end of the episode and said, no way. <laughs> <laughs> True. We both literally did. I did it. Hoover was at home alone and there was nobody to tell him he was stupid for feeling that way. I stood up and did that. Everybody else said, shut up. We know you love the show. Stop it. <laughs> Stop liking things. <laughs> oh but yes this is this is um i don't want to say it's a great episode but it's a momentous episode because of some of the stuff that happens in it so only human season three episode 23 on tubi it's also in hasbro pulse okay well thank you for these discussions hoover i always get a new perspective on this cartoon that i love so much after our get togethers and if you want to have a buzzsaw for a mouth, or or have a friend who's a gorilla with octopus arms, go write a few nice things about this podcast. You know, wherever you interact with people, go to Mastodon, go to, go, go to that new social network everybody's talking about ever since Twitter got funny. Or go, you know, if you haven't rated us on Apple Podcasts or wherever people rate podcasts, do that. Just say a few nice things about like what this project has meant to you. Uh, and that helps send a signal out into the world a social signal and an algorithmic signal that says, Hey, this thing means something to somebody. Maybe I should show it to more people. And we're grateful to everybody who does take the time to write a few nice words about us. It means a lot. Mm-hmm. And if you would like to support us, maybe involving money somehow, you can go to our T public store at www tpublic.com slash user slash four million years later 
and there's a lot of designs there that you can have a look at and get them on various products like a cell phone case baby onesie stickers a lot of different yeah. stuff have a look put a four million years later sticker on your laptop mm-hmm. so then when you're at the coffee shop write your screenplay and somebody says what's four million years later and you can say well i'm glad you asked <laughs> these two and nice they can guys go, oh no <laughs> <laughs> I was polite to a stranger and it's bitten me on the butt. I actually, I do, I do that as a, one of my lessons I teach in comics class is getting the kids to write an instructional or informational comic. And they're like, well, what, what kind of information would we talk about? And I'm like, well, think of a topic that if I had the misfortune to ask you about, you would wind up with a deep breath and then vomit a thousand things at me about why this thing means something to you. And I, and I would be sorry that I asked you why you like it so much. And then, (laughs) You say that to any 13-year-old, they've got it. They know what it is. For this one, it's Dang and Rampa. For that one, it's Warrior Cats. But with adults, it's a little harder sometimes. And I think I think it's because enough of us have met those people who, like all my 25 or 26 siblings, said, stop talking about things you like. <laughs> and then suddenly you don't want to talk about them anymore. Well, you know what? This is a place where we like to talk about the things that we like. So, you know, put, put more of that energy into the world, people. Go write a few <laughs> things about the show and then go to our T Public store and get a sticker. Put it on your laptop. And thanks to everybody who does do that. Mm-hmm. All right. This show drops on Thursdays at 4millionyearslater.com. And there's places to interact with us in a social capacity coming up in the outro. Until next time, I have been Jersey Drozd of 4millionyearslater.com and rss.jdrozd.com for everything I make. I have been the Hoover in the death. <laughs> okay, bye. <laughs> Goodbye. Episode synopses are from imdb.com and some episode information taken from tfwiki.net. The closing theme is by Nick Mahalik, based on the original closing theme by Ford Kinder and Ann Bryant. You can find more of Nick's music at soundcloud.com slash nicholas-mahalik. That's spelled N-I-C-H-O-L-A-S-M-E-H-A-L-I-C-K. Find us on Facebook under 4 million years later and you can email us at 4 million years later at gmail.com visit 4 million years later.com and if you haven't yet please subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts you know how it works <laughs>